Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. Hey guys, it's Helen Molesworth. For those listeners who were here last year, you might remember several shorter episodes we dropped last fall. I'm thrilled to be back on the feed again to release a few more. We'll be dropping them every week or so, and I'll be calling up friends and colleagues to catch up and get into whatever is top of mind for them, be it happenings in the studio, classroom, the museum, or the art world at large. I hope you enjoy them, and as always, thanks for listening. Hey, Steve. Hey, Helen. The Metropolitan Museum of Art has mounted an extraordinary exhibition called Manet Degas. And man, this is the kind of show that only a museum can do and only a big bad museum like the Met can do. It must have been on the part of the curators of the exhibition. Uh, the American curators are Stefan Wolohogen and Ashley Dunn for the Met. It must have been simply Herculean. I cannot imagine the degree of international diplomacy required to get Manet's Olympia to leave France and come to the United States for the first time. And the show is set up around a sort of structural conceit, which is the concept of frenemies and or artistic rivalry. Uh, and the idea that Manet isn't great alone and Degas isn't great alone, that perhaps they are great only in relation to each other, right? They have each other to spur one another on. And I found this refusal of just one great name kind of thrilling. I wondered, one, for you as a practicing painter, what you thought about the staging of their dialogue. And um, two, whether or not you thought our time has produced such a dialogue as well? Like, are there two people that we have in our midst now that we're aware of sort of like kibitzing on, on the canvas, so to speak? It's such an interesting question because when I saw the show, I thought, look at how tiny the world was where Degas and Manet could be in the same social circle, have the same friends, um, use some of the same models, have each other over for coffee, get into a fight, and make up. And have that be known throughout the their circle, right? And I don't think the world is, is small in that way anymore. I don't think that, you know, if I think about like contemporary artists. I don't know if, if two contemporary artists have that kind of relationship. I do think that there's rivalry among artists. I really think that that's real. And I think that that's helpful. 
I think I've said to you before that jealousy and envy are two different things. Like jealousy is like, you know, wow, they're amazing. I've got to work harder, you know, and envy is they're amazing. How do I destroy them? You know, it's, um, it's two different things. So I think that there's a lot of envy, if I'm honest, but I think that there's also a lot of jealousy. Like um, I went to a mass mocha recently, right? And I saw EJ Hill's show. It is absolutely breathtaking. And I walked in there and I thought, this guy, I want to be in conversation with this guy. When you say I want to be in conversation with this guy, do you mean literally I want to call EJ Hill and have lunch? Or do you mean I want to go back to my studio and make a picture that is in dialogue with the pictures and or the the sculpture of EJ's in the room at Mass Mocha? It's the second. As a, it's, a, it's a studio artist-to-artist artist conversation where people never need to meet each other. To see exhibitions is much easier for you and me. We have the, the digital realm. We have publications that can get to us. This is the first time Olympia has been in this country. What does it mean to you that the Olympia is in the United States? Because I'm assuming you've seen it in the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. I have never seen it. You'd never seen I'd it. I'd never Steve seen it in person. Locke. I'd never seen it in person. Never seen it in person. And I loved Manet. I loved him in, in college. He was my, one of my favorite painters. You know, Alex Katz talked about him a lot. So he was very much in the conversation of painting when I was a student. Okay, so a painter of your stature, with all of your experience, all the pictures you've seen, knowing how much our generation came into painting through Manet, like Manet is the, he's the guy, whether you're an art historian, an art critic, a painter, like you can't imagine being an artist without somehow going through the portal of Manet, especially if you're a painter. So you see Olympia for the first time. What did you think? It's still shocking. It is a shocking picture. And I think it's because the subject matter is sort of um, known at this point. So I don't want to go through it again. I do want to say that the model, Victory Morant, was an artist in her own right. She was not a prostitute. She was a, a painter. She was a musician. And she modeled for a bunch of different people. But knowing that the narrative of the painting is conveyed in so few symbolic elements, I almost forgot it just looking at the paint application. Manet's marks in Victorine's flesh, people harsh on Manet because uh, there's not a lot of modeling, like whatever that is supposed to mean. But what they don't see is that Manet used the direction of his brush to talk about form. So the way the brush moves across her body, it's almost he, like he's moving the material around the forms of her body. It's incredible. And um, mm. he did the thing that uh, Titian did in the Rokeby Venus, where lots of the painting is painted transparently, but Olympia is painted opaquely. So she shines like this sort of, almost like this weird beacon. And the Black woman, Laura, who is holding the flowers, her gaze is so specifically directed at Victorine's face that you can tell what you can't tell in reproduction. And maybe I'm making this up, but the painting gives the sense of Victorine turning away from Laura. And she's got her hand covering her pudenda. So essentially, Laura's bringing the flowers from the suitor, 
And Victorine is saying no sale at the same time. The whole painting is this sort of turgid expression of the relationship between these two women who are both at work. And I got to say, the brother can paint a flower. He really can. He can paint a flower. He is showing everything that he can do. He's really demonstrating how much he can like scandalize and tell this whole story about commerce, about sex, about refusal, about race. He can tell this whole story with a very limited number of tropes. So yeah, that was my, and I maybe spent like 40 minutes in front of me. It was great. I wonder, given the amount of attention you just gave in your description to the paint application Mm -hmm. on Olympia's body, is there something that Manet was doing on the body of the maid, the Black woman, Laura, in the painting, Mm -hmm. that's different than how he treats Olympia's body? I think that the way Laura is painted is very different than the way Victorine is painted, of course, you know? And the economy of means that he uses in uh, Victorine's face is similar to the economy he uses in Laura's because he knew both of these women. He painted Laura on a number of occasions. There's no shorthand involved in the way that he paints um, Victorine, and there's a little bit of shorthand in the way that he paints Laura. So she's, um, because I think it has more to to do with how your eyes work you see Olympia first, then you look at the maid, and then the maid's looking at Olympia. So the gazes bring you back to the quote-unquote, the subject of the painting, right? It goes from Victorine to the flowers to Laura in, in that sort of triangle, right? The dynam- dynamism of that. And Lorraine O'Grady has talked a lot about the presence of the Black woman in this painting, you know? I- I'm really grateful that we now know her name, you know, that sh- we have a name to go along with this person. He uses the same color and the same technique in the sheets as he does for her clothing. So there's something about her being an extension of the room, right? And I think that he has painted her like another sort of um, set piece to explain the story. The only thing that really gives her any individuality is the directionality of the gaze and that gesture she's making with the flowers. She's opening the flowers for Victorine. She's showing them to her, right? And so in that action, she has a a role to play in this story. She's not just a Black thing set up to make a composition, right? And this idea that maybe these two women work together, like maybe that's the relationship, this sort of idea of, of imaging Black people in France, in contemporary life, among white people, where every French woman's husband would have known what's going on in this painting, I think that that is part of the scandal. I don't think the painting would have been as scandalous if Manet had painted a white maid, because it clearly locates this activity as something of the demi-mondaine and not of, of haute bourgeois French society. Right, right. So let's talk about this. The show itself is structured as many of the reviews have noted, by the slash in its title. It's Manet slash Degas. So it's compare and contrast. It's the it's the groundwater of how art history as a discipline works. And so the show is set up to let us look at Manet and Degas as the painters of modern life in Paris. They're born two years apart, so they, they occupy the same social class, the same position. And we have Olympia 
But then what we have from Degas are these incredible paintings that he paints when he goes to New Orleans as a Frenchman, because the family business is involved in cotton selling. And there's this extraordinary painting of the interior of a business, Rome, in which a bunch of white men sit around and read the newspaper while cotton is piled up on a table behind them and is being it sort of looks like looked at for quality, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a commodity that's being um, assessed for its value. And for an American, <laughs> this is a really extraordinary painting. And Manet's painting has Laura in it. We have a black body. And in the Degas painting, there are no visible black bodies. They are implied everywhere and they are nowhere evident. There's evidence of their labor. Yeah. There's evidence of their labor. So what did you think of this sort of incredible moment that we were afforded by this exhibition to contemplate these two pictures pretty much simultaneously, you know, to hold them in relation to each other? It's so funny to me, Helen, because New Orleans is a, has always been a cosmopolitan city. There's like black people all over New Orleans. And I can't believe that none of them managed to make their way into this painting. Like, it's kind of incredible, you know? And like, it's 1873, I think, is the painting. You know, and so it's, you know, the war's over. There's, you know, quote-unquote reconstruction or whatever is going on. There's plenty of black people in commerce, in cotton at this point, you know? So, yeah, okay. And what, what did you, what do you call it? It's a, a structuring absence is what uh, that um, the, the cotton becomes. And this idea that, you know, America as a place of exotic adventure for a Frenchman, a chance to go rough it or see how the other half lives. And so that idea that this, I, this engine of, of the wealth of the Degas family is depicted as this sort of... Um, almost you that sort of Japanese space that happens in a lot of impressionist painting where you're looking over a wall into a room and the vastness of the enterprise becomes clear, right? That Degas makes it clear that we're only seeing a section of this. We're not seeing the whole operation. This is just a section of how massive this operation is. Yep. And it's really interesting for me to see it because it, it, it's not... It's funny, it's presented like it's a genre picture, right? Like um, like the like Rembrandt's Syndic's Guild or something like mm-hmm. that. It's like a bunch of guys at work, right? But it reveals so much more. So much I more. Found, I found its revelation uh extraordinary. I mean, I found the first off, there's so much cotton on the table. Mm-hmm. So he's allowing the thing, the commodity, to take up as much room in the picture as Olympia takes up in Olympia, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's, it's the cotton is laid out on the table the way Olympia is laid out on that chaise lounge. Because it's cotton, it's he's bordering on abstraction. Like, he doesn't know quite how to get all that white paint to cohere into something. Mm-hmm. And then the figure of what is passing for labor at that moment mm-hmm. is this bourgeois man 
kind of kicking back reading the newspaper. Right. Not touching anything. So you have like the residue of one of the most backbreaking forms of labor. And it's almost like Degas knows this because he didn't need to make a spectacle of this guy reading a newspaper. You know, that, that he doesn't need to do that. It could have been something else. Um, so this contrast between um, the commodity and the non-laboring body, mm-hmm. I found really quite dazzling. I had never seen the picture in that way before that Degas got a problem on his hands, which yeah. is how does he arrange himself as a painter of modern life when he is often imaging people who are not working. Well, it's the problem of leisure, right? A leisure, which is a relatively new thing. You know, we have Surat with the Island of Grand Jatte, which is essentially a painting about a day off, which is something that is completely new because of industrial society, right? And so this idea of labor, or like who works or who has to work, Degas didn't have to work, didn't have to. Right. And so he can afford to be a painter, which is great. I'm not harshing on him for that. I think that that's fantastic. Right. But the subject of modern life, let's really talk about what the subject of modern life is. Let's talk about what progress really is. Progress is a bunch of white men in New Orleans sitting around reading the newspaper while someone sorts cotton. Right. And I think the hard thing for people now is that, you know, we read a lot of the, I read a lot of the reviews. A lot of people, Talk about how great Degas is and compared to Manet and how he's more spiritual or more soulful or more introspective and all that sort of stuff. That's just shit that people like now. It has nothing to do with it. Manet had a gigantic ambition. He had a huge ambition, right? He looked at Titian. He looked at Goya. He looked at all those people and thought, you know what? Those are my people. That's the conversation I want to be in, right? Manet is looking backward to historical antecedents. He mm-hmm. wants to be part of a historical conversation. Right. And I also understand Degas largely involved with his contemporary moment. And that's why he's able to deal with the camera in a way. Right. The exhibition shows us that Degas is involved with Manet in a way that Manet is not so much involved with Degas. Bingo. And so Degas is a presentist. He is really... I mean, Manet might be painting modern life, but Degas is painting like his day to day. Like Degas is almost diaristic about the effects of patriarchy, capitalism, whiteness, and technology on the actual bodies of the people he is painting. Where Manet is instead painting himself into some kind of tradition, he's painting himself into that lineage. Right. And so Degas. I was I too read all of the reviews. I was really struck by how many people saw it as an opportunity to choose between Manet and Degas. Yeah, which is nuts. I know I didn't I I I too didn't feel that pressure. But I also thought it was interesting how many people ended up with like, okay, I'm on Degas' side because one of the things I thought was, oh yeah, Degas is mean. Yeah. And our current image world if like we think about instagram is kind of mean Mm -hmm. it's it's filled with envy and spite and resentment and grievance and a a kind of collective snide ennui about 
the conditions that our bodies are in. It's and, the activity, Helen, of taking a photograph of someone without their knowledge and posting it on social media. Right. That's Deka. Yeah. And so some of the cafe pictures, I think particularly they had the absinthe drinker and um, plum brandy next to each other. Yeah. In the show. And everyone's like, oh, it's such a great pairing to show how much more introspective and how sad and how tragic the life is that Degas is embracing. And I was like, you know, if I were that woman, I wouldn't want to be imaged in that way, right? It's not a very flattering or compassionate image. I think that that's right. And and that that is something that's true of Degas over and over again. Degas is a voyeur. Mm -hmm. Like Degas, to use our contemporary parlance in social media, he's a lurker. Yeah. Manet, Manet is the painter of modern life, and he's in it. He's not looking at modern life as something outside of him. He's looking at himself as a part of it. And I think that Degas is on the outside looking in. Let me ask you one more question. So the exhibition makes uh, makes hay out of this painting that Degas painted of Manet and his wife, Suzanne. Manet's lying on the couch. Suzanne's playing the piano. It's like one of the first things in the show. It's a big, it's a, it, it sets up the whole tenor of the exhibition. And Manet is in a very, like, he almost looks like sort of drunk or stoned at a party. He's like, you know, very, very relaxed looking, listening to his wife play the piano. And his response to this painting that Degas had given him is to slice it and to slice Suzanne, not all of Suzanne, not all of his wife, just her face and hands. Mm -hmm. He slices down the canvas from top to bottom so that we just see like a sliver of her body at the far right-hand edge of the canvas. We don't know what he did with that part of the canvas. We assume he discarded it. Degas famously comes to the house and sees that Manet has cut his painting, caught his <laughs> gift. Oh my God. That is some shit, girl. That is some shit. Can you imagine like what the cafe talk must have been for the weeks, weeks of crazy gossip after that, right? So Degas comes, he's horrified, he's angry. He takes the gift back and returns a little still life that Manet had given him prior. Manet loved Susan Lienhoff. He loved her with a sort of love that is just sort of um, defying his parents and everything, right? She was his piano teacher. I think, and this is just my opinion, right? It's not based on any art historical fact, right? I think Manet was saying, you don't have the skill set to paint my wife. So it's like a Chris Rock moment. It's like the slap. It's like- No, no, no. I don't think it's like Keep my wife's name out of your mouth. I think that Degas was probably trying to do something to show that he thought his wife was an object of regard and beauty, right? But I don't think that Manet was satisfied with the way that he painted her because he loved her so much. Because he paints another painting. He paints Suzanne's portrait in the same orientation. And it's breathtaking. So I, like I said, I think he's just like, you know what? Don't be looking at my wife like that. Don't be doing that. Which is, of course, interesting because... The other painting in the in the show is the amazing painting 
portrait that Manet paints of Bert Morisot, oh. who he is also in love with. Oh. And then Bert Morisot marries his brother. Mm-hmm. And then he paints another portrait of Bert Morisot. And the first one, she is the most beautiful, ravishing woman ever to walk the face of the earth. And in the second one, she looks like she has consumption. Mm-hmm. I mean, she looks dead. When people talk about portraiture and the, what it takes to make a portrait, you forget the best portrait painters, you forget about them and you think about the subject. Right. You don't look at the painting and you think that's a Manet. You think, oh, that's Berth Morisot, right? The ability to look and to record and to transform is the part and parcel of portraiture. It really is where portraiture lives. It's not a casual thing. It's not done at a glance. To paint a portrait is to look at someone in a way that is not common. It is a withering, almost cruel investigation of what someone looks like. And to look at someone in order to paint a portrait of them is to look deeply at them. Steve, thank you so much for coming and having this incredible conversation about these sort of crucibles of French painting. Two guys who share a project. They share a project about portraiture, about painting modern life, about what it means to be a painter in a small circle of friends. That this work has lived on so long is thanks courtesy largely to museums. So for all the times I've I've chastised the museum as an institution, I I just wanted to say again, this is what they do best. Yeah. And if you're a painter of anything, this show is a tremendous gift because to see the ability, the facility of these two artists and how it changes and grows over time. So it's just, it's really, it's really a great show. It really is. I can't wait to see it again. Thanks so much, Steve. All right, love. Talk to you soon. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. If you like this episode, please follow, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It really does help the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you join us here next time.